Welcome to Fertile Thoughts. I am Marjorie Dixon, the Medical Director and CEO of Innova Fertility and Reproductive Health. I'm excited to be here and launch our very first podcast, Fertile Thoughts, a podcast made for TTC Warriors as a new way to bring our community together. We're here to connect, learn, and inspire each other. So let's get started. My guest today is Alex Johnson. She's a CEO, a women's advocate, a policymaker, and a lawyer who recently published a book, Inconceivable, about her fertility journey. Alex's journey to parenthood was not an easy one. On the contrary, it was unexpectedly a five-year-long struggle through fertility challenges, medical procedures, uncertainty, and loss. She's joining me today to share her personal story. Alex, welcome and thank you for coming. Thank you, Marjorie, for having me. So for people who haven't read your book, tell us a little bit about your story and then let's talk about your book. So my husband and I started trying uh, to have a family when I was 32. Uh, my mom had had five kids in seven years, five daughters, and I never anticipated having any issues. 32 felt pretty young to me. Um, I went to see my doctor and my doctor said, no reason to believe you'd have any issues. You're healthy. Um, you're young. Uh, and try for 12 months. And if, you know, God forbid anything happens and you had any difficulty, I'd refer you to someone. But, um, you know, we didn't feel there would be an issue. Uh, we did try for a year and nothing happened. So we were referred to a fertility specialist. And um, as soon as we got in to see the, the specialist, which, which took a little bit of time, uh, they did a fertility workup. Um, and I was immediately red flagged as someone with significantly reduced ovarian reserve. I was about 34 by then, so we'd lost about a year and a half of trying. Um, and the doctor said, you don't have any time to lose. You've got very little left in your ovaries. And so we moved into pretty aggressive treatments right away. Um, I started IVF, and I did four rounds of IVF, which was what was recommended, and that was not successful. And we didn't know if it was a problem with my eggs or a problem with my body. There was no real um, indication of what was going on. I just was never able to get pregnant. So we asked my youngest sister, Sam, who was doing her PhD at the time in her late 20s, if she would consider being an egg donor. And she said yes. So we tried with her and we were pretty optimistic that with uh, donor eggs, we would be successful. And I still was not able to get pregnant. So we ended up saying, it's not, it's unclear if it's a body issue or an egg issue. Um, but we'd heard a little bit about surrogacy, which was pretty uncommon at the time. It was sort of 2004, 2005. Uh, but we reached out to someone who had been a surrogate to another couple who, who someone referred us to um, and we ended up working with her and she got pregnant almost immediately using my um, using our embryos, my eggs. Uh, so we were over the moon and we sort of thought, why didn't we think of this sooner? Because we had been at it for about uh, three years by then, um, trying to build our family and uh, very tragically at full term, a uh, day past her due date, she went into labor and the um, our daughter, Sam, uh, um, suffocated in labor and delivery and was stillborn. Uh, so we ended up on a very different journey that was infinitely more complicated than just facing infertility. We grieved the loss of our daughter, Sam, profoundly, but we felt very strongly that um, we wanted to become parents again. Uh, and we wanted to have the experience of raising a child and not just having a child and losing a child. So we Worked with a number of surrogates. Um, we worked with one unsuccessfully. Um, and then we found a wonderful surrogate in Ontario and a wonderful surrogate in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And we said to both of them that we 
we're planning on uh, doing this with uh, two people simultaneously. Simultaneously, would they be okay with that? And they said that we would. So we tried with both, and they both became pregnant. Um, our Green Bay surrogate uh, at eight weeks called to tell us that she had miscarried um, and was no longer pregnant. And she kept going back to the hospital because she was having all the symptoms of pregnancy and they kept sending her home telling her she'd miscarried. And at five and a half months, she called me to say, I did not miscarry. They finally did an ultrasound and confirmed there is in fact a baby in there. And that was our daughter, Sadie. So we joked that she disappeared for three and a half months and then reappeared. Um, and then our daughter, Georgia, uh, was um, uh, carried by our wonderful surrogate in Ontario. And she delivered our daughter, Georgia, at 29 weeks Um had its own set of challenges, but we ended up on the other side with two beautiful daughters. So when my daughters were three months and six months, I was exhausted and uh, I didn't know what was going on, but I thought I had some medical issue. Um, so I went to see my doctor and it turned out I was pregnant uh, very unexpectedly with uh, our son, Lucas, and he was born totally normal pregnancy. Uh, one and only time I was able to get pregnant and he was born 12 months after his sister, Sadie, uh, on Christmas Day, so we ended up with three kids in 15 months, which was, um, again, its own set of uh, uh, experiences and quite a journey in and of itself. You know, I don't have words. I can't imagine how hard that must have been for you, but I so appreciate and thank you for sharing this incredible journey with us. Thank you, Marjorie. It is such a personal story, and you made such a difference from a policy place. Why did you decide to actually let it all out? A, I've never felt ashamed about it. Um, infertility and the need to get help just seemed like a, you know, a, a, not a normal thing, but it seemed like it, it just was what it was. Um, so it never felt uh, shameful to me. I knew going through it, you needed to change. Um, and so, you know, you and I know that, that I advocated, as did you as part of the um, expert panel. Uh, I didn't know that the advocacy would take the form of a book. But as I started three or four years ago, listening to women in their early 30s talk about their experience, I thought, oh, my God, nothing has changed. Like This is still pretty similar to what I experienced. And that that was a big motivator. And I thought, OK, this needs to uh, move forward much more aggressively. Um, and I said, I think telling my story matters. The book originally was more policy focused and it was soundly rejected by all publishers and they came back and said, no one's interested in a policy book on infertility. I was interested in a policy book on infertility. <laughs> <laughs> I would have been. Okay. <laughs> and my wonderful, wonderful book agent said, we've got to embed this in your personal story for it to really resonate with people. And through that, you can embed learnings in the book, uh, which is ultimately what I did. But this is about advocacy for me. It's a purposeful book. And I have written it with the hope that change uh, is coming. And I want to be part of pushing towards that. As you said so aptly that it was your, you dealt with these barriers and it was your experience that long ago and you talked to people and it's exactly the same thing. And, you know, I do a lot of public speaking and, you know, we use our social media and we talk whenever I get an opportunity to put me in front of people to talk about things since that expert panel on infertility and adoption. And that was all the way back in like 2008. Yeah, I, yeah, I was pregnant with Gabriel and he was born. The report came out in... 2009 on the 26th of August and it was it's hard to come like he's 12 years old and I'm still saying the same things and patients still are lamenting the two greatest barriers to accessing care infertility are the emotion of the journey 
the, how difficult it is to navigate. And the second thing is the cost. And, and those are the two things that we have to do better. And so that more people can access care. It's like one in six. One in six, it's not infrequent. It's supremely prevalent. And, you know, I think that part of what is so interesting in the book was that you were talking about how even your doctor didn't know about you know, gestational surrogacy and like made some kind of outlandish comments about you're like, you're the expert, right? Like, why am I educating my expert about this? So so I, I, I think that patients need to know that it's not illegal in Canada. Like, that's the other thing that people keep saying. And that there is always a means of accessing care, even in the higher order assisted reproductive technologies. And now, in this day and age, everybody's interested. We do gestational surrogacy. We're LGBTQ friendly. But for me, for Nova, for, for Canada, it was so important to recognize that families are diverse, right? Like there's such a diverse landscape that makes up family in Canada. Single people, heterosexual couples dealing with infertility, gay men, single dads. And, and that is something that I, I think is a tremendous gift in the book as well, because it helps to, to normalize. You're like, this was 2009, this is what I went through. Can we please have some organization to get this to, to the masses, to our patients that need it in 2021 already? Yeah. And we have the, we have the tools. Uh, we haven't created access, uh, but one of the, to me, the reframing isn't so much, you know, women who need fertility help. My book is really directed at women because there's a, you know, biological component that's very real for them at the time that they're looking at starting their families. But it's this fundamental desire to become a parent. We want people to become parents. We need people to become parents. Mm-hmm. And if we look at that and we're putting the value on um, having a child, that includes everyone. And so whether you're a man or a woman, that desire, that need is is very profound in people. And so I think the supports really need to focus more on that. I know, even though theoretically anything in the world is possible today, it's not accessible. So if you don't have money to access support for adoption or support for fertility treatment is very hard, very expensive, very time consuming. And those things have to change. Those barriers are movable. And that's Mm -hmm. something that we need to focus on moving. Yeah, absolutely. While we do what we can at Inova, that's, that's part of our mission vision, the whole idea of facilitating the journey for all kinds, right? regardless of who they are, whether socioeconomic, their, their sexual orientation, gender identity, whatever, geography, HIV status, like we wanted to make access to fertility care for all a priority. And, and we're not perfect at it, but we work at it actively. And I, I think that reading your story reinforced that while we have come away, we still haven't arrived. And so, what do you see right now as a continued barrier that we can potentially fix? Like I'm thinking about my trying to conceive community that are listening. And, you know, what do you think is the, a mini lift that we can do that can have a big effect? Yes, it's a great question. I think there are three big gaps. The first is information. Uh, and that's a pretty simple fix in my mind. Uh, women are not getting information early enough to use it. Women are often not getting relevant or accurate information. I understood going into building my family that 35 was a dividing line. And I felt like you're safe before 35 and things get riskier after 35. And that was really not um, not helpful or accurate in any way, shape or form. 
I learned once I was in it that my fertility, like your average woman had peaked at 28. And by 32, uh, when I started trying 15% of my peer group would face infertility, that was big news. And I felt at the time, and I feel strongly now, every woman needs to know that. Uh, on average, most women are having babies in their 30s now. And there's a whole host of information that should go along with that. So they're well-informed. So information is the first gap. And making sure that the relationship with a woman's family doctor is such that the doctor is raising us proactively with women early on um, and really making it part of uh, her annual medical uh, checkup is, is really important and would be a very significant a change that would be beneficial to women. The second big gap is health plans making sure businesses start to look at this as a significant health issue that it is for young women and men in their late twenties, early thirties, mid thirties. This is often the thing that is top of mind. It's the most important thing uh, on their agenda period uh, or their health agenda and making sure that um, support for family building, uh, fertility treatment and adoption is built into health plans is uh, really important. Um, this is a big issue and the choice to have a family or not is a really important choice, but that choice being taken away from people is is profound and has very significant impacts on them, you know, psychologically, emotionally, financially, um, and it's uh, it's something the businesses can have a huge role in addressing. And the third big gap is um, government support and funding. To me, this is a very important health issue. Uh, the world has changed. Uh, men, women, single people, um, same-sex couples, heterosexual couples want the ability to build a family and there are tools to do that. We have to make those tools accessible to people. Um, and I do feel like family building is too important an issue in people's lives to uh, simply um, ignore it or maintain the status quo and governments have a big role in making um, uh, options um, accessible to, to people broadly uh, beyond just women like myself, uh, anyone who really wants to start a family. So those would be the big, the big gaps. Absolutely. I think you just nailed it. And I, I think that that might be one of the most valuable pieces of information that we could build on. I say it all the time. Well-trained I am. 14 years of postgraduate education. And I didn't really learn how to talk to people at top-class universities in Canada about conception planning. Contraception, contraception. Everybody knows five, six, ten ways through Sundays how not to get pregnant, right? People are like, I'm going to put Fort Knox up there and sperm's on top of it. like, that's what's getting through, chastity belt, right? People think, oh my God, I'll slip and fall and sperm, I'll get pregnant. That's the, the concept. But we don't talk about, okay, it's not taboo. I'm not saying you have to have a kid, but is family, is your own genetic progeny important to you? If not, fine. But you need to understand the limitations of your reproductive lifespan. By the age of 30, women have depleted their ovaries of 90% of their eggs. Right. The, the okay news is the 10% that remains is still relatively okay functioning to 35, but just maybe, maybe probably just if we checked, because often we don't know when it's not so good. And then after 37, by 40, we've depleted our ovaries of 97% of their eggs, 97%. And the 3% that remains is not that good. Right. So, so, and it's assisted reproductive technologies. It only assists what often has accelerated in its diminution in quality. And so I would love to talk to university level women like in their 20s. I've already done my daughter's 13. I've talked to all her friends about, you know, when you're in your 20s and you're at university, you got to talk to your parents about maybe freezing some eggs just so you have options. It's an insurance plan. Hopefully you never use it, but it's option. We have that ability now. We need to be better at normalizing it 
and then not being I'm not I'm a feminist people know my sons I'm raising them they know mom yes mom I'm a feminist man I will be a feminist man talking about family and and childbearing and and planning is not taboo it gives you options so that you don't end up at the mercy of your biology in your 30s and the 40s on well, I just spoke to a biology class at Bishop's University, um, and I did a book event in the summer, and the, the professor was there, and she said, would you come speak to my class? I said, of course, uh, 60% men, the rest women, incredibly thoughtful questions. And I said, you're 21, 22. You don't need to worry about this. But if we start to normalize this, um, that's where this conversation starts to change. She's now going to do a case study, and so she wants to get it into textbooks. And I said, it's not, you know, you and me and different people doing one-offs. It's starting to find the platforms where change is much broader. And I do think if we can work with family doctors, it's a huge touch point. I do think if we can start to build this into learnings and textbooks and things like that, much mm-hmm. like contraception. But at no point is anyone ever saying, if you want to preserve your choice to have a family, and that's a fundamental choice we want you to be able to make, there's things you need to start doing in your 20s to protect yourself and to inform yourself. Um, one of the reasons why I wrote, when I was writing this, people said, well, are doctors not having this conversation? I said, look, I don't know. I mean, I, there's no research um, around these kinds of issues. But what I do know is when I look at the public, public Health Agency of Canada, the federal government's public health information arm on their website, they have that same terrible advice. If you're under 35, try for 12 months. If you're over 35, try for six months before seeking help. And I kept saying, but how is our fertility peaking at 28 by 32, when I started, 15% of us were going to face infertility, and you're still routinely telling women, don't worry, try for 12 months, don't bother getting help. And by 35, many more women than 15% will struggle or not be able to have kids. I'm like, it makes no sense. This is widely available information. It's wrong. It shouldn't be out there. We need to have better information, and we need to have the right access points for people to um, have that information early enough for them to use it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Reproductive biology is, is just not just contraception. My dad taught reproductive biology at LCC in Montreal, and I remember joking with the boys, what you know, I'm first. <laughs> but but uh, it never was anything about conception planning. I remember the library period at UCS in grade 10, where it was the story of Louise Brown's 10th birthday. Oh. And reading about the future of medicine and reproductive medicine. And I was like, oh, God, this is so for me. But it was novel. And I should have been like, I was a menstruating teen. Like I should have had some knowledge of, I had great biology teachers. We knew about reproductive biology, but we didn't ever talk about what it might mean to face infertility, almost like it wasn't a thing. And it's been a thing for a long time. It was actually a woman reproductive biologist that started describing the endometrium and its ability to implant an embryo in 1949. Like we have known a lot that we don't apply to public policy to make a change for the people. And if we're thinking about the trying to conceive community and the struggles that they face in accessing care, the least we can do is just like we're talking about systemic policy, changing the things that will make a broader difference to how we see the issue will make it not necessarily a non-issue, but a lesser issue. It's nonsense to tell people to try for 12 months. And I hear this all the time, by the time people get to me, every day when I see patients, because I see patients every day, every day when I see patients, I have to say, I'm so sorry that this wasn't told to you sooner. It's awful as a physician. 
And and I don't know if patients know how terrible an empath physician feels when you're like, I knew, I know all this stuff. It's in my head. It's in our training. In fact, the research that we're doing is looking at how we can identify it genetically so we can pinpoint the genes for people early on so they don't just end up at the mercy of their biology. Um, but the emotionality, let's talk emotionality because that's still a huge thing. So for individuals struggling with fertility, what would be a piece of advice that you would give to like to, to somehow encourage or you wish you had known because you figured it out with difficulty, lots of bumps. If you could give a, a pearl, what would it be? Uh, ask for the help that you need. You will need support. And so whether that's at work and being transparent with uh, the appropriate people and saying this is what's going on and this is the flexibility or support I'm going to need. These are conversations that are important to have, whether it's with your partner or your friends. Um, I still think there's a lot of misinformation. When I was going through this, you know, it was like I was an alien in my friend community. Uh, no one was going through this. And so it's sort of like, well, what did Alex do to end up in a situation where she can't have children? And not mean-spirited, but just no mm -hmm. one was experiencing this. And until you're experiencing this, you know, very little bit. Um, really, really push to ask for and get the things that you need because this is hard. Um, I always said to our fertility specialists, let me manage the emotional. What I need from you is great medical advice. And mm -hmm. so treat me like your daughter. Do not give me any advice. It's sort of wishy-washy. The, the curtains are on fire. The house is close to burning down. Let's put out mm -hmm. the fire and get on. Like, let's save the house. Um, yeah. so you, your role in my life is pragmatic, best possible medical advice. The emotional piece, I will make sure that I'm taking care of outside of this, but let me do the things that I need to do that are medically necessary. And I will worry about that piece. So um, I didn't want my fertility specialist to be my therapist. I wanted the person to really help me build my family and all those other pieces work social. Um, I pushed very hard to get the things that I needed to make it to the other side, which ultimately we did. And I'd say to people, there are a lot of options now. If you really want to become a parent, there are lots of ways to get there. There are affordability barriers for sure. but be confident that there's not one path at the end of the day. However, I became a parent. I was committed to becoming a parent and I knew someone was not going to just drop a baby off on my doorstep, but I did feel like I, with all the crazy things we experienced, I didn't feel hopeless. I felt committed to being a parent and I felt like I would. Um, and there are different options to get there. And I would just say to someone, just keep your mind open and explore if being a parent is the fundamental thing you're looking for because there are different ways of getting at that. I love that you said that. I think that's an important message also to get across to people because well-trained reproductive endocrinologists, fertility specialists, gynecologists who specialize in fertility, they are dedicated to getting you pregnant and using their tools in their toolkit to get you there. Who cares if it didn't happen naturally? You're now in the right place to make it unnatural, but to get you to your goal. And I think that that's a, a good message for people because it is disarming. But I also want to encourage women and individuals out there trying to conceive to allow the physician to actively manage them. It's not a sign of failure, but it's the only way to get you to the other side. And if your goal is to take home baby, my goal is to get you to take home baby with the least amount of banks and the least amount of time possible.
anything. And that's truly what we're endeavoring to do for our patients. So I think that's a great point that you bring forward that you were kind of able to separate, maybe to survive the experience, but uh, but you, you got there. I, having had my own journey, different, but, you know, transfers and transfers that failed and then going to work and making everybody pregnant, it was weird. It felt like the ultimate irony. Um, but, you know, getting to the other side was was keeping the grip, just grip, just keep moving, keep moving forward. Eight failed transfers, it totally sucked. Torst ovaries, like admission to hospital, emergency surgeries, nothing like yours, but still crazy, intense. Yeah. Uh, I would say to people when they ask for advice, I said, make sure you're with a great person. So make sure you're at a really good, reputable clinic because that's the only way you're getting there. Um, but when I started and I walked into the clinic and saw this sadness in the waiting room and you could see, you know, people were struggling. It was a hard experience. I thought, I'm different. I'm super healthy. I'm super on top of things. I'm only 33 at this point, you know, closing in on 34. This is not meant for me. Like, I'm sure they're going to say like it was a mistake. Um, I'm sure they're going to give me an injection in my gut of a bunch of hormones and they're going to kickstart everything. And I'm just going to be out here and it'll be fine. And at some point you accept I'm not special and I need this trusted, intelligent person who's responsible now for my family planning because it's completely out of my control to do a great job and to give me honest, consistent information that I can use. And that's what happened. But that shift had to happen. I was not special. My destiny was to be in that clinic for many, many, many years. <laughs> um, and, 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 and to trust that they knew what they were doing. And I could not be like, no, 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 I can do it my way. We, we, we'll get there. There's nothing realistic about that. And that trust piece matters. Yeah. I mean, like I do, like I, I think my patients are smart. I talk science to everybody. I share everything that I know. So perfectly what you said, it's exactly what you said. You know, the, there will be failures and maybe you'll get pregnant on your first cycle. I don't know. But I think that uh, if we think about framing this in a way that makes it manageable in manageable bites and, and keeping goal oriented, we think about having finite disappointments and Martin Luther King Jr. said it best. We must accept finite disappointment, but we must never lose infinite hope, right? Like, I think that it's also what we do in life where we get over our disappointments and get ourselves back up and keep moving forward. It's that we have the hope that we can get across the line yeah. and that's often the fertility journey for people alex you're like the best i don't know i, I feel like i have more to, to say and because the book I, I still i had visuals of all of some of the experiences you described and so i don't know maybe we're going to have to have another one and, and um do you have any closing thoughts your fertile thought for closing um being hopeful based in reality Absolutely. Nima, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and us today. You are a tremendous human being and you're sharing your story, even though it wasn't policy-based as you pragmatically wanted it to be. <laughs> I think that this is going to be an amazing ad for all of the TTC warriors out there that are just trying to get through. So thank you for the generosity of your time and your willingness to be part of our first podcast. <laughs> thank you for your great work and uh, I hope we get to see each other in person at some point yes you too soon and we can actually hug and touch 
Thank you all for listening to our very first episode of Fertile Thoughts. If you have a story to share with our community, reach out to us through our social media channels. We would love to have you in our next episode. Until then, remember one small positive thought in the morning can change the course of your whole day. So let's make sure it's a fertile one. Goodbye for now. <laughs>